good to be with you all, and I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. We'll be concluding this mini-series, is really what it's been, in between books of the Bible, um, as we have taken up Romans 12 the last uh, four weeks, and we will conclude that this week. Lord willing, we'll be beginning the book of Ephesians in approximately two weeks, so uh, please be prepared for that and praying for that as we would, um, as I would be doing the preliminary work in that wonderful book, which speaks so much to the Church of Christ, uh, so much application for us. And, um, but for today, I'd ask you to turn to Romans 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. 9 to 13 was last week's text. Uh, This week's text will be 14 to 21, but in order to get the fuller context, I thought it'd be helpful to actually read the whole of it, beginning with verse 9. So let's read together. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So far, the reading of God's inspired word. Let's bow once again and ask God's help. Father in heaven, we do come before you as a needy people this day. Lord, we thank you that our hearts have been warmed in measure through the singing and praying and reading of your holy word. And now we ask that you'd quicken our hearts, Lord, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be convicted and challenged and encouraged to look to Christ afresh and anew for motivation in obeying these mandates set before us. We ask that you'd remove distractions and cares, O Lord, and that we would come, as it were, to your feet to learn from you. Send the Holy Spirit, O God. But without him, we would be lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been blessed and challenged as we've been going through Romans 12. And and really, this this chapter 12, is, as Brother Deepu said, is really the beginning of this huge application. What do we do with all this wealth and all this doctrine and our standing in Christ? And now we have to put feet to that. We have to put that in practice. And, and beginning with Romans 12 through the end of the book really is that application section. Paul exhorted us in verse 1 that by the mercies of God that we present our bodies as living sacrifices to him. 
And we can't just do that by getting together and mustering up enough strength and saying, okay, let's go do it, right? Like like a, a pep rally or something. No, but we need to look to the mercy of God as our motivation in doing anything for the Lord. And then in verses 3 to 8, he listed those diversity of gifts. And in verse 9, as I read there, the, 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 the heading phrase is, let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, the love sincere, the love unhypocritical. And all the other phrases underneath it all modify that. They all point back to that. That's the heading. And so we saw several things last week. We saw that it's really the practical application of the gospel one to another in the context of the church. We're not to have ulterior motives in our love for the brethren. We're not to think, well, okay, I'll do this for Johnny and then I'll expect to get this back. No, we're not to have those ill motives, ulterior motives, this hypocritical type of love. Love is to be sincere. It's to be genuine, is what Paul is saying. He went on to say we're to be devoted to one another, like a natural family type of love, because we're all adopted into the family of God. If you're a born-again Christian here today, you are a part of the family of God, and there is a special kindred love that takes place. The King James has in verse 10, uh, the tender affection in brotherly love. And that's the force of the word. We're to honor one another, to serve the Lord with diligence and zeal and persevere in tribulation with hope and with prayer. And then to put feet to it in verse 13, we're to actually contribute to the needs of the saints, to actually help those in need. And then practicing hospitality or pursuing Hospitality, which I told you meant really aggressively seeking after that. Not just, well, okay, I'll practice it a couple times a year and say I've, I've obeyed this mandate. No, we're to actually aggressively seek after it. And again, if love is unhypocritical, it's going to come naturally, isn't it? Well, today we move into this uh, next series of exhortations beginning in verse 14. Or, or, yeah, verse, verse 14. And really what he's talking about here is a reactive love. To those that treat you badly, okay, how are we to respond? And this can be very challenging. This can be very difficult. I tell you today, if you are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will encounter opposition. You'll encounter persecution. And one way or another, you surely will. Paul told Timothy, indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. We might expect it from those outside of the church, right? Most of us have experienced it on some level. Let's face it, it's pretty minor with the protections that we have in America compared to the persecuted church and the rest of the world at large. But we might expect it from those outside. But sometimes hurt and offense can take place inside the church as well. And we need to deal with that. Uh, A couple of you chuckled because you've experienced that. You see, when we open up our hearts and we open up our our very selves and we open up our homes and we have hospitality, we're making ourselves vulnerable to the people of God. And sometimes, because of sin, somebody will turn on you. Somebody will um, be in opposition to you. So really, verses 9 to 13 is proactive love. What can we do to positively love the brethren? Verses 14 and 21 is reactive love. What are you going to do? Are you going to retaliate when somebody offends you? Or will you respond in love, whether inside, inside the church or outside the church? 
So I think that's helpful to think of it along those lines. We must remember that just as surely as we have been saved by grace, we must daily seek to live by that grace. For without Him, we can do nothing. And we need the grace of God to be able to respond in love when we are treated ill. And showing love and not retaliating when wrongs are suffered uh, to our enemies can be extremely difficult. Let me try to illustrate it um, from an incident in church history. Back in the 16th century, there was a man, Dirk Williams, who was an Anabaptist and who was arrested by the Spanish Catholics and was to be put to death. This was in the Netherlands, and he escaped by letting himself down on several sheets, all tied together in rags, down onto an icy pond in the wintertime in the Netherlands. Because he was so poorly fed and so skinny, he was able to run across the ice with ease, the thin ice of the pond. However, when the heavy guard gave chase and went down onto the ice, he fell into the water. Dirk Williams heard the cries of that guard that was pursuing him so that he could recapture him to burn him at the stake. He heard the cries and the wails, and Dirk Williams turned around and rescued that guard. Well, that guard, of course, was ungrateful, took him back to jail, and after all this, he was still burned to death as a punishment for his Baptist beliefs. You see, such extreme love like that to an enemy, it it should shame us. We should be prepared, and we'll see in our text that the idea is is to think beforehand how you will respond to others. To think beforehand and have the frame of mind, the frame of reference, remembering the grace of God as your motivation to respond in love to our enemies. Imagine how this man must have felt as he stood in the flames, chained to a stake, realizing the deed that he had done, going completely unnoticed. But it wasn't. God saw, didn't he? And God was well pleased. So today we're breaking up the passage. Really just two very simple thoughts. And I'm beginning both points with your Christian duties because only Christians can obey these things. They're very difficult. If you're not a Christian today, your natural, your flesh will respond in retaliation and, and in sin when you are offended and hurt. So very simply, your Christian duties towards everyone, that's those inside and outside the church, verses 14 to 16, and then verses 17 to 21 is clearly our Christian duties towards our enemies. So first of all, verse 14. He says, bless those that persecute you, bless and do not curse. We are to seek to bless those that harm you. This is just, you know, it's just like, wow, this just goes against the frame, like our normal thinking, doesn't it? The word to bless means to ask a special favor, to um, call for God's blessing upon someone. And in the original, it has, uh, there's there's actually three imperatives here. He's, he's, He's commanding, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's very forceful. Now the word for persecute here is the same word that occurred up in verse 13. Practicing hospitality, pursuing uh, um, hospitality, the same word, dioko, has the idea of pursuing after as in a chase. And hence, it's translated persecute several times in our Greek New Testaments. And if if your persecutor is a Christian, we must remember 
that Christ died for his sins as well. That helps to change our frame of thinking. And then we can begin to say, we can call for a blessing from God upon them. We are not to curse, he says. Do not curse. Paul's reinforcing what he's just commanded us to bless, bless those who persecute. And then in case we're dull and we don't get it, he's and do not curse. He's reinforcing it. You must not have the slightest desire for vengeance and retaliation to those that harm you, to those that persecute you, or that will taint your desire and prayers for them that they might be blessed. Now, you can remember a couple of men that wanted to curse in the Gospels. Uh, remember James and John? Remember what, he, what, what happens there? It says, And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What did Jesus say? You do not know what spirit you are of. Such love is so contrary to our sinful nature. That's why when we have renewed natures and as, as we're renewing our mind, as we're giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, as we see what's really important, we're able to begin to put these things into practice. Listen to John Calvin. He says, Hardly one in a hundred wishes well to him from whom he has received an injury. But God by his word not only restrain our hands, from doing evil, but also subdues bitter feelings within. And not only so, but we would have, but he would have us to be solicitous, uh, soliciting for the well-being of those who unjustly trouble and seek our destruction. It is such a rare thing, but how we ought to do that. We have some wonderful biblical examples uh, in the Bible given to us in the New Testament. Remember what the words of our Lord Jesus Christ was from the cross? as he's there hanging on the cross at the hands of persecutors and those that violently treated his, his body, ripping out his beard, nailing the stakes to his hands as he hung there and he looked upon all those that are mocking and scorning him. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a beautiful example. And then take Stephen in the book of Acts, the first Christian martyr, as he's there preaching and preaching, and that the stones begin to come until finally there's a, there's a pile of bloody stones all around this man. And what does he say? He cries out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Remarkable examples that we have in the New Testament to bless, to seek favor. Upon our enemies. Well, let's hasten on. In verse 15, he speaks of the rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are to open ourselves up emotionally um, to others. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. And this takes an investment on our part, doesn't it? It takes an investment. If you are uninvolved and you have no relationships, there's no opportunities for you to do this. It's to the degree that you are involved uh, that you have opportunities for this. We're to show pity and compassion for those that are suffering loss. Think of our Lord Jesus as He walked and, and on the fourth day comes in John chapter 11 to the tomb of Lazarus before He calls Him forth. He sees the weeping. He sees the bitter wailing. He hears the bitter wailing. And what, is he, what does it say? Jesus wept. The shortest verse in all the Bible. There he is, weeping with those that are weeping. He entered in into their 
misery. And then we're to truly rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, the, the idea of resisting showing emotion, uh, we, we, can't re- we can't do that. God would not have us to be these stoics that are just unmoved by everything and, and that, that there's no emotion whatsoever, that we just have blank looks and, and nothing moves us. Some personalities are naturally like that, aren't they? Where they're just unmoved. He would have us show emotion. Jesus experienced the whole varied range of human emotions. It's still in his sinless body when he was here. It says that he was a man of sorrows. It says that he sympathizes with us. He enters in into that sorrow. He knows what it's like in Hebrews 4.15. That's why he is our great high priest. Because he can truly enter in and to sympathize. It says in Matthew 11 that, that Jesus rejoiced. So he rejoices. Of course in John 2 in the temple we see what? Righteous anger. So Jesus Christ had all of these varied emotions. And I commend to you B.B. Warfield's work on the emotional life of our Lord where he draws several of these out. But, and so just as Christ had these emotions, we're to have these emotions and yet not sin. And so to go ahead and enter into someone's suffering is a good thing. You know, those that practice foster care for what we'll call practical um, orphans in our midst, uh, those that are in homes or in holding centers waiting to be placed in a home because the parents don't want the children anymore or whatever, you know, those that go through the training, they are actually told, expect to get your heart ripped out. As you pour your life into this young one for a period of a couple of years, the goal all along is what? To place them, to place them uh, back with their birth parents. And so eventually as that takes place, your heart's ripped out. You've poured your life, you've invested. Imagine one of your own children to have them for two years and that's it, they're gone. It's very difficult. But the whole point of that training is that you can't stand off emotionally and say, I'm not going to get close to this child. If you want to impact that child for good, you need to enter in into that relationship and to be close. This is the type of investment that we're to make with one another in the church. We're to invest in one another, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to hold one another up. And I can assure you that as you open yourself up, you will be hurt. There's going to be situations, there's going to be examples, there's going to be something that happens even in the context of the church to where you'll have your feelings hurt. And that's why it's so important to have biblical means of reconciliation because we are going to sin against each other. And in verse 18, we'll see that and also during Sunday school, we're going to talk about that in fuller detail. Rejoicing with those that rejoice perhaps might be a little harder than weeping with those that weep. Have you ever thought about that? Well, just think about it for a moment. When God is blessing a brother so abundantly because of whether it's circumstances, whether it's some recognition, um, and all of that in your life is just the status quo, the status quo. And it's almost like nobody's noticing what's going on in your life. It can be hard to rejoice with him when you're discouraged. And you're not seeing that, but we are called to do that. We have to be careful because the flesh will do what? It's going to tempt us to envy, resentment, and all of these sins, and ultimately bitterness. And so we have to be careful not to to guard against that. 
You see, you don't have anything to lose. You must remember that each of us have been saved by the same Christ, via the same cross of Christ. And so we've got nothing to lose as we pour ourselves out. We're all children of God. The opposite of rejoicing, of course, is envy, and the opposite of weeping is gloating and ridicule. So don't be emotionally indifferent. To be self-centered, that you're so unmoved by another's calamity, is wrong. We're to show compassion. We're to be imitators of Christ and to show compassion and pity to others. That's an irony because some people can be so passionate about other things in this world, career, the 401k or whatever, and just pursue and run after those things. But we are called to be passionate towards one another, to enter in into loving one another as we ought. That kind of leads us into verse 16. He says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Uh, William Hendrickson translates this, Do not be snobbish. You ever know a snob? Those that can tend to be snobbish. He, he's saying, don't be snobbish. Be of the same mind. Turn the page over to chapter 15 and look at chapter 5 and six, or verses 5 and 6. Paul says, <clears throat> Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying here? This idea of being of the same mind is that there's strength in numbers, that we with one accord and one voice would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's encouraging us to be of the same mind towards one another, to be unified as it were. Paul is also addressing the dangers of pride. He mentions it twice in this verse. Did you see it? He says, do not be haughty in mind. Literally, don't be high-minded. And then don't be wise in your own estimation. Paul would have us to be humble, to not be proud. In order to live in harmony and to be of a sound mind, every single manifestation of pride must be slain. It must be put to death. It must be repented of. It must be removed. It must be eradicated. Pride is very dangerous. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Can you do that? Are you one that's wise in your own eyes? You know better than everybody else. You, you, you know, you're, hot, you're high-minded. You know better than everybody else. Paul says no. With humility of mind, esteem others is more important than yourself. You see, a conceited, proud Christian is a contradiction. If we're saved by grace, free grace, not of works whatsoever, if we're saved by grace, how can we be proud in any way, shape, or form? See, what's needed in the church is more humility. Pride must be removed. 
We will not always see eye to eye, brothers. You know this, brothers and sisters. There's going to be minor differences that we're going to have, whether it's about music, whether it's about a hymnal, a songbook, a PowerPoint, the snacks or whatever, the color of the pews, the color of the carpet, whatever, there's going to be minor differences. But those are not to divide us. You know, it's an irony that most divisions, you know, church splits and ugly divisions are not necessarily over doctrine. They're over personality conflicts. They're over minor differences. And that's grievous. Are you one of those people that always thinks you're right? You know, I've got it figured out. This is the way it should be. I, I'm, I'm sure this is right. You need to be careful of that. We are called, also, this can be hard, those that are high-minded and are, that are wise in their own eyes, and, you know, we are called to love them as well, right? Uh, Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. He goes on in verse 16, he says, But associate with the lowly. You see that in the middle of the verse. It means to associate with the outcasts, the poor, homeless, All of these types of things. John MacArthur says this, not because they are more important, but because they are more needy. That's why we're to associate with them. In Luke 14, it says, and he also went to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return to repay you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have means to repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. In James 2, James addresses this issue of the sin of partiality, showing favoritism. And I wish we had time to read the whole chapter, but I'll read the first few verses for us. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there is also a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one that is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in the good place, but then you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. So we're not to do that. We're not to show favoritism. We're not to be high-minded and proud ourselves. We're to associate with the lowly. Well, let's move on to our second point. So we've seen what our duty is to everyone. And sometimes these offenses, these... um, people that persecute can come from within the church. Now, uh, Paul turns his direction really largely to those outside of the church. So your Christian duties to your enemies. Don't retaliate when wrongs are suffered. You see, our sinful nature violently rebels and wants to react and retaliate and to get even when when harm is done to us. Isn't that what our natural, that's, that's our natural response We're not to be vindictive, which means a desire to get even with someone for a suffered wrong. 
You see, our human nature wants to take revenge. It wants to defend ourselves, you know, sometimes rooted in pride. But, but our natural response is to defend ourselves. And so when something is said to us, we come back and we respond back. And, and it goes back and forth. Think of a, a blowfish. Have you ever seen a blowfish? Um, you know, picture, video, or whatever. How does it respond when there's trouble or an enemy coming, right? This little thing just goes, whoop, you know, just gets huge. And it blows itself up. Think of a skunk. A skunk does not need to be trained that when offended to spray that foul odor in which one drop can be smelled for a square mile. It doesn't need to be trained for that, you see. It's natural. It's a natural instinct. And they do stink. Um, but it, does not, it, does, we, it doesn't have to be taught to do this. And so too, our human nature. It's so contrary to our human nature to respond in good when we're offended, when we're persecuted. And so with the new grace, with, with the new life in Christ, the power that comes from that, in renewing our minds, we are then able to do that. You see this natural human nature playing itself out with two spouse, uh, spouses arguing, a husband and a wife, and, and, and it's going back and forth, right? And it's, I've got to get the last word in. No, I'm going to get the last word in. No, you're going to get the last word in. Two children on the playground. It's the same kind of thing, right? You've got this little spat going. Uh, little Johnny says, okay, all right, that's cool. We're done. <laughs> Gets the last punch. Oh, yeah, here's two. Boom, boom. You know, and it goes back and forth. That's our natural nature. But Paul would say no. In 1 Corinthians 4, it says, when you are reviled, or when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even until now. Peter as well, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but blessing with blessing. He says in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. We must respect all men, a certain level of mutual respect. This will help us to develop the self-discipline that is needed to be responding in good. The force of the words here actually has the idea of to think beforehand. Think beforehand. So when we're down at the Adams Avenue Street Fair, the huge music festival there for two days, and you know you're going to encounter every cult that's out there over the course of two days and 24 hours or 20 hours of ministering down there, you think beforehand how you're going to respond. Or you could very easily get into the flesh and end up in this carnal type of argument. So to think beforehand, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Proverbs 3 says, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Have you written kindness and truth on your heart lately? Are you just one that's going to exert your rights every opportunity that you have? Brethren, we are to live lives consecrated to God with a genuine love for all. Yes, a special love for those that are in Christ. A special love that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Yes and amen. But a genuine love even for our persecutors. Even for those that are on, outside of the church. We are to be careful not to give an occasion of complaining and grumbling 
course, we look at opportunities like this as an occasion to bring the gospel, the gospel of peace. True peace is only going to come through a gospel in which we can be reconciled to God because sinners are at enmity with God. And though you can have some surface peace with someone, true peace only comes as we are in Christ. John Calvin says, We ought to labor that men may, in a word, perceive the good and sweet odor of our life by which they may be allured to the love of God. Is there a good, sweet odor in your life? Is there, is there, are you producing a saltiness, a thirst in those unbelievers that you work with, your neighbors, those that you come in contact with? Oh, we ought to. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And are we going to sit there and just hide it and not show it to anybody? No, we want open doors to bring the gospel to bear, to bring the word of God to bear in various situations. In verse 19, he, he continues this thought. I'm coming back to verse 18 in a moment. He says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. He reiterates really the thought of verse 14, the thought of verse 17. He's touching on this a lot. Blessed do not curse. Uh, never pay back evil. Here, never take your own revenge. Some commentators think that perhaps there's... Perhaps there's... Um, there was a problem in Rome with uh, these people wanting to retaliate with some church members. But notice in verse 19, the word beloved. Do you see that there? It's a, it's a, tend, it's a word of tender affection for these people. We haven't seen it since way up in verse 1, where he says, I urge you, brethren, or I urge you, beloved, that you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. So he returns to that, that term of endearment for the brethren. And as Christians, we're never to take personal revenge. We must not ever think of how we're going to inflict a punishment on somebody and put ourselves in the place of God. Really, revenge is taking matters into your own hand. And if indeed Jesus has removed the wrath of God from us, we should be happy to resist revenge. Now, let me qualify this. I don't think what Paul is teaching here, that um, the verse is not teaching us to never, ever defend yourselves. If somebody comes barging through your living room window this evening with a gun or something and trying to take your wife and daughter out of the house, you have a right and a duty to defend yourself, okay? This is not talking about that. So, in verse 19, he says at the, in the middle, For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, Leave room for the wrath and the, of God is added. Leave room for the wrath. And it's, um, surely speaking, of the wrath of God uh, in the context. It can't refer to our wrath because he's telling us not to have wrath in this regard. When he says give place, it really means to leave room for the wrath of God, that God's justice is the perfect justice. You, you can't, when you begin to inflict punishment and retaliate, you're putting yourself in the shoes of God, so to speak, figuratively, right? That, that somehow you are all-knowing and you know exactly what should be done in this given situation. No, we're to leave room for that. Our judgments are tainted by sin. So instead of executing judge, uh, justice... 
God will do right. He will right every wrong with moral perfection. And that rolls into the verse 20 there, the quote um, there from uh, Proverbs. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's been multiple differing views set forth in regards to this verse. Um, but I think it's the idea that if you don't repent, kindness, the, the, the kindness will add to God's uh, wrath. That the kindness that we do will add to the, the shame and the, um, the, the um, bitterness that this person feels. That here I've been hostile towards you and all you're doing is you're giving me kindness in return. And, and, and that shames somebody, that convicts someone. 1 Peter 2.15 says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silent the ignorant and foolish men. So let's move on to verse 18. Conspire to be at peace with all men. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, I don't have to tell you, you know this, that this, our world lacks peace. We live in a, war, a, a world in which there's wars everywhere, there's fights, there's crimes, there's murders, there's suicides. There's, there's so much lack of peace that really is what feeds sin. But we are to think about, we are to, if possible, if it depends on you, to be at peace with all men. To, even to conspire and to think ahead of how we can. Hebrews 12, 14, very similar verse, says that we are to make every effort to be at peace with all men. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers and the Beatitudes. And we'll be looking at some peacemaking ideas in the adult Sunday school class. But true peacemakers are those who follow the God of peace, who cling to the gospel of peace, who cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought peace uh, through the work on the cross. And we are to imitate Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Now there's two conditions that he gives here. He says, if possible, Paul, I think, is recognizing that there's some circumstances in which you might not be able to bring about peace. That peace is impossible in some circumstances. and, And also, we must never sacrifice truth in order to maintain peace. So, for example, there might be an opportunity to bring some reconciliation between someone that, that holds to an errant view of the person and work of Jesus Christ, but he'll only forgive you or, or grant peace if you believe what the error that he believes. No, we can't do that. Uh, other situations might be to where the, 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 you cannot get in touch with a person or whatever. So um, we are to be at peace if possible. And then he says, so far is it depends on you. So we're to make every effort if it depends on you. Don't think, well, I tried. I dropped a one-line email and I put the bait out there and they didn't bite. No, make every effort. Phone call, call, go to the house, whatever it takes. Make every effort to bring about peace and to strive for it. Jesus says, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Sometimes peace will be impossible. Now, 
let me unpack this idea here. I think there's, it's getting into a nuance here where we are to confess our sins to one another. That's how peace comes about. When there are those infractions, when there are those offenses and so forth in the context of the church, we need to seek one another's forgiveness. That is, it's biblical to do that. And let me unpack this a little bit. You should seek forgiveness from God and from the offended party if you have sinned in any way. Be eager to take the first step. Understand the source of fights and quarrels often comes from our own pride or our own lust or our own high-mindedness of how things ought to be and us exerting our rights. That which may be legitimate sometimes can become an idol and we're willing to kill, as it were, for it. Nearly all conflicts that you have, surely you are at least partially to blame. Now see, in the world's eyes, it's, okay, I'm sorry, okay, that's it, right? But biblically, will you forgive me? Because I know I hurt you. And acknowledge that, and to ask that. In fact, Jesus makes such, says that this is so important, he makes much of it in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says... Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You can't worship God right if you're at odds with somebody, if you're in the midst of a conflict. This is why it is so important, husbands and wives, singles, whatever, if you're at odds with a friend or a spouse or even your own children, and you know that you have sinned against them, you have a duty before Sunday worship to make that right. You, have a, you should do it the same day. Don't let the sun go down on, on your wrath, right? <clears throat> but certainly to make things right before you come in and put on the plastic smile, you know, a masquerade, as it were, before the people of God, as though everything's okay. Humble yourself. Go and make things right first, as Jesus says. Leave your offering. Whatever the offering is, leave it and go be reconciled first. Then come and worship with a full heart, an open heart, and all appreciation for what God has done, for He is the one that has reconciled us to Himself. We who are at enmity, from God, he is reconciled to himself. How much more do we have a motivation to go and be reconciled one to another? Ken Sandy, who wrote the, the book called The Peacemaker, he has um, the seven A's of confession, and I think this is good. I'll just run through it really quick. First of all, address everyone that's involved. Sometimes your sin is of a public nature, um, whether it's in front of your children, uh, extended family, or whatever. Address everyone. Avoid words like if, but, and maybe. Well, will you forgive me? I wouldn't have done it if you weren't provoking me, right? That's, no, don't do that. Thirdly, admit specifically what it was that you did. Apologize. Uh, Admit that there was some harm and pain that you caused. Accept the consequences, which sometimes can be restitution, right? Um, Alter your behavior. In other words, strive not to... Do that again, and then ask for forgiveness. <clears throat> and again, more on, on some of these principles during Sunday school. Well, in verse 21, Paul <clears throat> ends this section, and he says, 
do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in the Greek, it's fascinating. The two words for um, Nike really is the, the root word. Nike, where you get the word Nike. Um, to overcome, to be an overcomer. It's in the passive voice here. Do not allow evil to just come in and overcome you. But rather, positively, in the active voice, overcome the evil with good. Be actively doing good. It ties in with what he says up in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So we are to be actively conquering evil with good. And that's really a summary verse for the whole chapter. Well, let's um, bring a couple of concluding applications. We need to ask ourselves, do we love all men? Are we willing to say and to do and to put into practice loving those that even are outside of the body of Christ, being in, in, in such a way to be in such a frame of mind that, that when the, the um, persecution comes to you that you can respond in love. You see, we were all enemies of God before He reconciled us to Himself. And if you are struggling to do good to all men, even to enemies, and and each of us do, um, I think, to some degree, what we need is to study grace. We need to understand who we were before He, he, he called us in space and time and effectually called us to saving faith in, in space and time. Who were we before we came to Christ? We need to study grace that there's nothing that we have done that has saved us. It is all His work. He has done it all. And you are no different than any of them out there. Except for the grace of God, there go I. And we need to have that mindset. We need to remember that. We need to remember that we're saved by grace alone through the work of Christ alone. It's nothing within us. We are to show that love. And again, just an opportunity for evangelism as situations like this come up. Have you ever sought forgiveness to an unbeliever? Sometimes like, what? Well, I guess. Whatever makes you feel good or whatever. Then you can explain what it means to seek forgiveness from God. Do you see how that's an open door? It's a wonderful thing to humble yourself. Of course, if you've got so much pride, you'll never do that. But to humble yourself, look for opportunities to do that. During the American Revolution back in the 18th century, there was a Baptist pastor by the name of Peter Miller. He lived in a small town in Pennsylvania, and there was a man there that hated his guts. His name was Mike Whitman. Uh, He was an evil man. He'd humiliate the pastor every opportunity he had. Finally, Whitman was uh, was, uh, arrested for treason. Peter Miller walked 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of this evil man, Mike Whitman. The dialogue went something like this. No, Peter, said Washington. I can't grant you the life of your friend. My friend, cried the old preacher. He's the bitterest enemy I have. Washington explained, what? You walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? Well, that puts the whole matter in different light. I'll grant the pardon. And George Washington granted that man's pardon. Peter Miller took back Mike Whitman, no longer as an enemy, but as a friend. That's the kind of love we're to show. 
That's the kind of sacrifices we are to be willing to make. And if we're really living sacrifices to God, if we've really sold out for Jesus, we're going to do what it takes to win somebody for the Lord Jesus Christ. All too often, we are too weak. All too often, we're too self-centered. Now, as I ended last week, as we look at our own lives, certainly we can say, you know what, we f- I fail. I'll tell you, I don't know about you. I fail in a lot of this. I do not do this as I ought. It is, it is not, I'm not fulfilling all of these to the degree that I know that God wants me to. And again, it's the, the, the answer is not that we say, okay, let's meet in 15 minutes. We'll have a pep rally and we'll just all try harder. What needs to happen is we need to see Christ in a new light. We need to understand more of all of the work of Christ, how He came from heaven, how He humbled Himself and became a man and took on sinful flesh, how He endured the cruel treatment of sinners, how He went to the cross, and yes, all those physical um, ill treatments that He endured, but God's wrath was the worst thing as He paid for our sins on the cross. We need to understand that when it says to be imitators of Jesus... To really be imitators of Jesus. And so to the degree that you have a greater love and appreciation for what Jesus has done for you and your personal salvation, you can now take a text like this and say, I'm going to think beforehand on how I respond. The next time I'm offended, the next time somebody comes into my face, the next time I want to retaliate, whether it's with a punch or a loud word or whatever, I want to be prepared to respond in love. Jesus responded in love to me by paying for every one of my sins. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. He humbled himself to the point of death that you and you and you might be saved if you're trusting in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would hear our cry Lord, we confess that in many of these things we fall short. We confess that we do not meditate upon your word. We do not meditate upon Jesus and his glorious work for us as often as we ought. For if we did, these would be great motivations in spurring us on to greater faithfulness. Lord, we are amazed at what you have done and how you have shown your love for us, even while we were enemies. Lord, we pray that you would work in us such an earnest desire to want to please you in every respect, that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that we would be conformed into the image of Christ and become more and more Christ-like, that you would be pleased to sanctify us by the power of the Holy Spirit. For who can do these things if any lack the Holy Spirit? Lord, we need your Spirit in fuller measures. Lord, we pray that you would bless the rest of this Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.